HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? Learn more about Wisconsin's cheese-making history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. What are we going to make? What do you crave? Hold our hearts, our histories, share it on a plate. What do you taste? Bring your body, bring your love, bring the ones you're thinking of. Hi, hello. Happy first day of fall. Thanks for joining us on Queer the Table. My name is Nico and I'm your host. A few months ago, I was living a really different life on the West Coast. And one day I was passing through Seattle and I stopped to have tea and these really wonderful homemade scones with this super lovely couple. And I get to share our conversation on today's episode. So I'm LM Zoller. I'm a food blogger and a zine writer, and I use they, them pronouns. And my name is Robin, and I write comics and make scenes and do illustrations. Uh, my pronouns are also they, them. I initially connected with Robin and LM on the internet. LM had been running a queer food blog called I'll Make It Myself for something like six years, and in that time had fallen in love with Robin, who draws and had been making comics, and so time passed, and the two decided to collaborate outside of the kitchen. Uh, And what I mean by that 
because that sounded dirty in a way that I didn't intend for it to. Uh, what I mean by that is that they decided to work together on a queer food zine called The Corners of Their Mouth. And so I started out by asking each of them how they found their way into food writing and food art. I feel like you should go first. Okay, I can Because do I think yours precedes mine chronologically. <laughs> yeah. I started I'll Make It Myself in 2011. So I'd been living in Japan for about a year and a half at that point, and I speak English and Japanese, but my English is stronger. That's my native language. And like my food vocabulary was really underdeveloped. Um, so when I went there, I was having a hard time like trying to figure out what, what was I buying at the store, like because I'd never shopped um, by myself there before. So when I started the blog, I wanted to kind of make it like if your first language is English and you live in Japan, here's how you can cook without wanting to burn down your apartment. Um, anyway, so I moved back to the States after four years and was still wanting to like do the blog, but I wasn't really sure what direction to take it. And then probably the more I wrote, like the more I noticed like our own sort of narrative was creeping into it. and. I wasn't really big into having this like background narrative about like I had been married to a cis man who identified as straight at the time and I didn't really want to write about him because it was just like he's irrelevant to my food narrative. I don't need to give a man like he doesn't need to man spread all over my blog. We had had like a really messy breakup and then we got divorced. But then like Robin and I had already been cooking together and so more of our narrative started like creeping into our my blog. And then at one point I was just like, I should just make this a queer food blog. Like I'm not, I'd always been kind of out on it. When I wasn't writing about how to cook in Japan, I was kind of writing about food and gender in the US. And so I kind of went in that direction. And then I think this is kind of where you come in too. Um, so at one point Robin decided um, they wanted to start making zines and asked me to collaborate on what became the corners of their mouth. Yeah. So I've been drawing for you know, since I was a little kid, which I think is pretty common for a lot of scenesters and comic <laughs> artists. Like, it's been a hobby for a long time. I didn't really start doing it seriously until a few years ago when I was having a... I had also gotten divorced. Um, and LM and I started dating, and I sort of got my life put back together after deconstructing everything during the process of the divorce. And... Um, started drawing again as part of that just as like a hoping that it would be a practice that I could use to to write down some of the stuff that I was going through and during that time I then started to discover that there was this whole I, I think I had not even heard of a zine until I moved to Seattle um, <laughs> but I I got kind of involved in um, zine related stuff here um, from some some folks who introduced me to that community mm -hmm. um, and loved it right away because you get so many so many zines are such a really deep dive into people's individual stories or their obsessions or their um, their hobbies in a way that I think like I didn't know that writing and drawing could be. So I started exploring zines, but Alem and I had always really wanted to do projects together. I think again, like like Alem was saying that we had been cooking together for a really long time. Um, so food art seemed like the natural evolution of that. I've really enjoyed 
doing food illustrations in just black and white, um, focusing on, on um, a way of talking about food that's not centering really like decadent food culture, um, and which tends to be what I associate with with gay food or queer food is this like opulence and over the top, um, which is great and really important. Um, and we need to have like moments of celebration and excitement in our lives. And it's also not really representative of what my food life is like and not really representative. I don't think of, of like the struggles of the broader queer and trans community. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you say that because I think there have been a lot of like think pieces in the last year. I think I read another one this weekend getting at this question of like, what is queer food? Which is like an interesting question and a question that comes up on this podcast a lot. But I also like, I think you just brought up a really wonderful point of like, this is what my queer community looks like. I guess that brings me to a question of like, what is queer food to you as individuals? as a couple that cooks together, as people who are like nourishing your community in a bunch of ways? I'm sure this is not an original answer, but for me it's, food is, is such a common point for every single person that we can come together over. And it's so important to me as a queer and non-binary person to have like actual human spaces where we can get together and food can be a really good common point to get folks together and a really like important element of of making a cozy space where people feel safe um because we often have so little safety Mm. um in our lives i have a really hard time putting my finger on like what one specific queer food is um (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah um and I don't know if it's okay if i talk about the first time that we when we debuted this scene at geek girl con um, in 2017, we put out a piece of paper on on our table that said, like, what is queer food? And we had a bunch of rainbow markers out, and we encouraged everybody who walked by to stop and, like, write down what they thought mm. a queer food was. And it was really interesting. There were the folks who answered, like, um, there were a lot of fruits, for one thing. <laughs> and then there was the, like, well, this food encapsulates like something about is a good metaphor for queerness Mm -hmm. in some way so I don't know something like pomegranate that's really like gorgeous and kind of unusual and then there were the other people who were like hummus is a queer food because it's like universally been loved by lesbians (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then there were the folks who were like well my favorite food is macaroni and cheese and I'm queer so therefore this is a queer food and I certainly didn't come up with an answer from that discussion, but it was cool to have those different ways of, of thinking about what queer food is. I think one of the ways in which that's like manifested in my own writing, but in like my own understanding of it is like taking something really like kind of basic or normal and like making it into something really fabulous. My ex-husband had some interesting opinions about food which he liked really basic stuff like just he would get upset with me when I would try to make it fancy Mm. so he would be kind of like why can't you just make normal mac and cheese why do you have to put like basil and broccoli and all this stuff on the top um and this was like an argument that we had for like a number of years before we got divorced because the more I cooked like he would just get really pissed off about it and I don't know why we started like referring to this as like monosexual mac and cheese time where I was like, I don't want to make 
something that's boring and not appetizing to me. Um, like, I want to make something that interests me. And, like, I think um, Joseph Hernandez said something about that recently that I really liked, where he said, like, I want to see something and I want my mouth to water. Like, I want to be excited to eat this. And I think he was on Raise a Sandwich when he was talking about this. Um, yeah, to me, a lot of what queer food is, is just like making it, even if it's simple, even if it's not, it doesn't have to be expensive, it doesn't have to be decadent, but it should be really like exciting, I think, or really, really good. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's such a wonderful combination of viewpoints of Robin talking a lot about like the space that queer food can create and then LM taking care of like and it also needs to be not monosexual <laughs> mac and cheese that yeah. sounds like a recipe for a really fun dinner party at this house um, yeah and I guess to clarify like monosexuality is like when you're only attracted to one gender so that like encompasses both straight people and people who identify as lesbian and gay like strictly um so I don't want to like throw my lesbian and gay friends under the bus here but it was in the same sense of like you can only have this one thing there's only one way to do this and that's like kind of the reaction that I got because I'm bi and a lot of that ties into like how I kind of see food because like we're so outside of a lot of queer culture sometimes and like we have our own culture but nobody believes us about it and on top of that being non-binary so I'm kind of like I don't know when people are like we need to make such and such gay again and I'm like yeah but like is there a gender neutral bathroom like are bisexuals included um but it's it feels very much like I took this thing that was broken and I fixed it um which is how I feel about straight culture and like cis heteronormativity LM I was reading one of your pieces about um vetting other food blogs oh, that was controversial <laughs> Well, but it's such an interesting thing because I think a lot of people re read food blogs and are mm. like, it's just about the food and it's not. Yeah. And I think that was, and I guess I should like also specify like on my blog, I've always been out as bi, but I only came out as non-binary, like probably around 2015. And that was also to myself mm -hmm. um, as well as on the internet. So I feel like when I wrote that I was still identifying as a cis woman, but it was really kind of funny because I just got all these reactions where, and I still get comments on it um, where they're like, you're crazy or like, you know, insert like your feminizing slur here. Um, but that was part of my motivation, I think, for kind of moving the blog in sort of a more queer direction. Yeah, so again, one of the problems that I had when it wasn't just the healthy living bloggers who all seemed to have some kind of eating disorder or disordered eating um, of some sort. Um, but then I had the other half where it was very much like, I'm a wife and mother of three, mama bear. They're like, this cake is great for a girl's birthday or like, my man wouldn't eat this girly pink cake. So I put bacon on it. So I was seeing a lot of like un unintentional perhaps like mm -hmm. gendering of food but it's so in the food system right that it can't be extracted and I think like being able to point out like why mm -hmm. why can't your husband eat a pink cake why is bacon considered like a man's food and the more you ask why the less sense it makes so if I just kept saying like but why but why but why mm -hmm. And I don't know, and like people get upset when you point that out to them because I think people think that they're normal. 
right. and that like not having to think about mm-hmm. it because they don't have to think about it. Like everything is for them, all media, all food media. And there's not a lot of representation of like alternative, I don't want to say alternative families, like different families, families that are not like a cisgender mom and a cisgender dad. And they're both heterosexual and they have 3.5 kids and a dog and live in a house that they own and they're white. But like, that doesn't look like my life. And that doesn't look like a lot of people's lives, regardless of their gender or sexuality. And just like the assumption that that's the default really bothers me. Yeah. And I, what I've noticed just from reading the blog is that you, what I've noticed is you haven't just removed that and been like, I'm just going to get straight to the recipes. You like have context, but it is a queer context. Um, Robin, do you want to read this first paragraph about your birthday cake? (laughs) Yeah. And maybe talk about it. I am happy to do that. Okay. For Robin's birthday this year, we decided to collaborate on the cake instead of having me bake in secret, which is hard to do when you live together in a small apartment anyway. Robin's request was for bi-pride ombre frosting, a million sprinkles, raspberries, and passion fruit curd. We also went with an outer space thing as a reference to some of Robin's favorite gender nonconforming queer things, including ancillary justice and Ziggy Stardust. I often feel like a visitor from another planet when I have to deal with concepts of binary genders and sexualities. And since we went as bisexual genderqueer space aliens, complete with retro antenna to pride, it felt very natural to continue being intergalactic travelers for another week or two. I might never stop, actually. I love that because it is everything that I can imagine like a straight person writing, but it's instead like, this is my family dynamic also brings in this is our living situation and like this is how we do things and collaborate around things um Mm -hmm. so and this is for both of you um like how have processes of discovering food and discovering queerness been intertwined um or have they i think around the time i came out as bisexual, I was starting to learn how to cook. And I was in graduate school. um, I was doing a two-year program. And in my second year, I got a fellowship. And then that kind of provided me with my own income. And it meant I also didn't have to, I wasn't allowed to work. Um, And it wasn't a lot, but it made a significant difference. And I also had a lot more free time to both work on my program, but I also had, didn't have to be at work or at school all day anymore. So I got to um, try cooking, I think for the first time. And I think like it was something that I felt that was very myself. Like this was like my own time to do this. And I was kind of just doing it for me. And I was really interested in just like having fun with food. And I think like it was for both of them, it was kind of like giving myself permission to be kind of extra. Um, I think one of the things that I kind of had struggled with, with like since childhood was being kind of extra, um, either like fashion wise or like what I wanted to eat or what I wanted to do. And like people were really not sure what to do with this. And so like the process for both coming out and kind of queerness and food together were just giving myself permission to be like, I'm going to wear a bright pink lipstick and I don't really care. Like, this isn't for men, this isn't for anyone, it's for me. I'm gonna do what I feel like doing. And the same thing was with cooking, like for myself, where I'm like, I'm going to eat this, I wanna make this, and like, why don't I just do it? 
and so for me it was kind of like these things were happening simultaneously and they're kind of intertwined where like now I just kind of like can wear whatever I want I can cook whatever I want and that's been empowering I think as a queer person to just like say like I'm okay the way I am and fuck what everybody else thinks I grew up at least in my mom's house um food was like a lot of what we did and we baked together a lot we cooked together a lot and so I had been cooking for a long time by the time I met LM but LM was definitely my first like major that I sort of acknowledged in my own heart my first like big queer crush um and a lot of what we bonded over and a lot of what we we spent time together doing was was food related um so for me that's really core to sort of like how how queerness for me and and food and cooking are are intertwined or just that that was a a venue for me to think about some feelings that I had not really acknowledged for myself before and I think a lot of the processing that I have had to do with food as I've gotten older and moved to Seattle and gotten more involved in organizing work has been trying to remind myself of and be aware of my privileges around food. Um, I volunteer with a um, a trans and non-binary organization and we make a really big effort at every single event and this has always been the case for as long as this group has been around that we always have food mm-hmm. um, and it's not necessarily anything special it might be like cheese sticks and crackers and some hummus but we always try to have you know like something that vegetarian and vegan attendees can eat and something that has protein in it and some kind of fruit or vegetable um and some kind of sweet treat thing and the motivation behind that was just that like the reality is that a lot of folks in non-binary community don't have stable housing Mm -hmm. a lot of us like don't have money to reliably eat meals um but that if we wanted to create this safe community space, like even if it's just coming together for a couple hours, um, we wanted to make sure that everybody was fed and had like that particular part of their needs met so that they could really be, you know, relax into the space. Um, so that's an area of, of queer food that I'm interested in that I still feel like I'm learning a lot about, but is, is like what are, what are the realities of food and food availability in all of our communities and queer and trans community, if you define them really broadly, encompass a lot of different folks with a lot of different food traditions and a lot of different economic circumstances. So that's my big area of interest now. Yeah, no surprise that Robin and I got along really well, uh, but we are actually past time for a break. So we're going to do that. And then when we come back, you'll get to hear a few samples from Robin and LM zine. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin has storied cheese history that begins with Swiss, German, and Italian settlers in the 1800s and continues today with nonstop innovation and award-winning artisanship. Wisconsin was the first state to establish cheese-grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. It is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of this helps Wisconsin Cheese win more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. Take, for example, Decatur Swiss Cheese Co-op, who have made cheese since the 1940s, 
Steve Stetler is a Wisconsin master cheesemaker who developed several new cheeses for the co-op, including a European-style Havarti, a Swiss lace cheese called Stetler Swiss, and a Colby Swiss marbled cheese. His cheeses have won awards at the Wisconsin State Fair and the World Championship Cheese Contest. To learn more about Wisconsin's award-winning cheesemakers, visit wisconsincheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Linda Liu, and I'm the host of Feast Meets West, the show that celebrates Asian culture through the lens of food here on HRN. Listen to episodes like The Evolution of Chinatown with Namwa Tea Parlors, Wilson Tang, and New York Times' Elaine Chen. Catch our ongoing series, Women in Asian Food, and spotlight episodes with our heroes like Anita Lowe. You can find Feast Meets West wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Okay, so it's late in the episode, and by this point in my conversation with Robin and LM, it was late in the day, uh, and I had to get ready to head out. But before I did, I asked them to flip through the corners of their mouth and read a favorite piece. This is what they chose. I have so many, so I think I'm actually going to talk about the gender reveal cake art. So um, since Robin and I are both non-binary, gender reveal cakes are really frustrating for us. And I don't think I realized how deep the rabbit hole went until I actually started looking up this stuff. This is like an endless source of frustration to me, like not just like as a like as a feminist, but also like as a transgender person, because like why just what like what does it matter what your child's gender is at that age? Like it's a baby. But anyway, um, enough of my like soapbox for a minute, but we made fun ideas for a gender reveal cake and it's a parody. So it says, um, sick and tired of cakes representing babies' genitalia with arbitrary pastel colors? Try these ideas instead. And so we have three cake options. One is a rainbow layer cake, and there's like a black and white drawing of a cake that's been cut open to have rainbow layers. Um, It's a baby, hooray! We have the, uh, sorry, but you'll have to ask baby pecan carrot cake. And the cake is cut open. There's a question mark on the top and the first layer says TBD and then maybe on the second layer. And then it says better yet, wait until baby tells you. And then the third one is based on one that we see pretty frequently where it's like, what will you be? And a lot of times it'll say like he or she, what will it be? And it's like, just just wait for the child to tell you it's going to be fine. So this one has a picture of, it's been cut open and there are bees, like the insect, literal bees coming out of a cake. And it says, bees, surprise, it has a lot of ease. Surprise your guests. Actually, please don't do this. It's cruel to the bees and they're already going through a lot. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, this was a delight. Thank you so much for having me in your kitchen. Um, Before I turn this off, do you want to share when or what plans are? for future zines and maybe where people can find your work on the internet or elsewhere. Yeah, so we um, are doing a second volume of The Corners of Their Mouth, which is super exciting. We're hoping it's going to be released in July. Mm -hmm. Um, So we work with Emerald Comics Distro, 
and Anne over there does an amazing job of getting a lot of our zines uh, out into comic stores all over Seattle and different parts of Washington and a little bit down into Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, we also work with Microcosm Publishing down in Portland. So they have um, some of our, our risograph zines, so the corners of their mouth and the queer language of flowers that we just put out last year, uh, <laughs> which is super exciting. Um, Other than that, I have an Etsy shop where most of these zines are available to purchase. Um, We go to events throughout the year in Seattle and hopefully in Oregon in Mm -hmm. the future. Yeah, and then Mm -hmm. Future Zine Project. You should talk about that. Future Zine Project. One of the ones that I just finished was like a mini zine called I Love You Like an Octopus. Um, Yes. And you can play the fun game of is it National Geographic or Out Magazine? (laughs) Um, The other one that I'm working on is going to be called Drag Suit, which is about being a non binary swimmer. And so I kind of wanted to talk about like just funny stories from the pool and also what that's like. So they're not actually about food. and then Robin also has some solo zines on their Etsy that you can check out. One is about um, nail biting and OCD and um, anxiety and flora and fauna. Um, and both of those are excellent in my opinion. All of those zines are great in my opinion too. Uh, and there are links in the show notes that'll take you to places where you can buy them for your very own self or someone else. Queer the Table is produced by me, Nico Whistler. Our logo was designed by Natalie Uduella. Our theme song is by Denali Gillespie. They also inspired the name for the show. None of this would be possible without the support of the whole team at the Heritage Radio Network celebrating 10 years of food radio. You can browse the whole archive of shows, 10 years of shows, at heritageradionetwork.org. Lastly, if you are enjoying Queer the Table, help other people find the show. Tell your friends about it, email it to your whole office, post about it on Instagram, and tag us because we have a brand new Instagram, at Queer the Table. Uh, I guess you could tweet about it. I don't know, I'm not on Twitter. That probably won't happen. And you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We will be back in your feed in two weeks. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.